0: issue for all women hello and welcome to episode 133 of the standard issue podzine. i'm mickey noonan and i burned my chin beating my beard area who says there's no glamour in 2020 not me What does it
1: look like
2: now sore but
0: smooth
1: okay well at least it at least it did the job it was supposed to do as well as the job it wasn't supposed to i'm hoping that by the
0: time the redness has gone down i get a few days before the stubble starts
1: I'm going to say minutes, probably. (laughs) I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and this week I had to go on the VR. Jen, you've been away. My nephew's got a VR. It didn't go very well. Were you like the dean in community? Did you become godlike in your power-hungry manner? Well, I can tell you exactly what happened. Because he's bought a VR, which was horrifically expensive, and he saved all his pocket money up for like two years. It's like a virtual reality head kit. Right. I believe it's called a Quest. But obviously it's really expensive, so he doesn't have that many games on it at the minute because he's only just bought it. So the first thing that I did was go on a roller coaster. Okay. And I lasted a minute before I had to stop and be sick. (laughs) (laughs) The second thing he did was what he does have in general like this is that he has a a Creed boxing game. Nice. So he he puts it on, and I have to, like, set it up, but he's talking me through it, setting it up. And he's like, you do this, you do this, you do this. You pick your fighter. You pick who you are. I picked Apollo Creed. And then you pick the fighter that you want to fight against. Right. So obviously I picked Clubber Lang. Right. And (laughs) and he can't see what I'm seeing. So he's saying, right, so where are you? And I'm in a dark alleyway. Right. I'm in a dark alleyway. That's where our fight's happening. The one thing that he forgets to tell me to do is to adjust the height setting. Proportions on it, right? So I'm standing there, right, with the VR on. I can't see anything else. And he's right, like, so he must be in front of you, Hannah. And I'm like, he's not in front of me. And he said, well, you can't see him. And I was like, no, I can't see him, right? And then he said, well, have a look around. And I turned around and I swear to shit, there was a six foot guy standing behind me, <laughs> six foot club lang about to punch me in the face. And I nearly shit myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to take it off, right? So then they decided what they'd do is they'd just leave me on the Google Earth setting, right? <laughs> Where you could just put it on, you could just have a wander around places, right? So they're nice and tame for me. So I obviously went somewhere that I couldn't ordinarily go, because you would, wouldn't you? So I go to Pripyat, which is in the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone. And I'm having a wander around the fairground. And then my brother, while I'm doing this, downloads some fucking Geiger counter meter on his phone and starts playing it next to my ear and i got thoroughly weirded out and had to take it off so yeah vr the so headset did not go well for me oh i think you brought too much reality to virtual reality so if anyone suggests you go on it jen and do the creed fighting game always make sure you adjust for height so they are the same height as you because it's fucking terrifying
2: what I would have tried to fight Apollo Creed so that I could touch him. (laughs) I can't believe this didn't occur to you. (laughs) Maybe it's just me being really creepy. I'm Jen Offord and I'm no longer on maternity leave. She's back. Hello. I'm back.
1: Hello.
0: Later on, I chat with journalist and author Tina Jackson about her book, The Beloved Children, a razzle-dazzle slice of magic realism inhabited by gloriously fierce
1: women. Meghan Markle has put the little talked about subject of miscarriages on the front page. And I've been chatting to director Frances Loy about her debut Swings and Roundabouts, a short film about grief after a miscarriage. And we've got a short preview of this week's Chops, in which I chat to the excellent Nadia Hussain about her new series for the BBC.
2: Ooh, Ooh indeed. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I'll be talking about the ever thorny issue of BBC Sports Personality of the Year. And Jen has
0: been stealing swords, snogging boys and generally getting too cocky for her own good. As in Rated or Dated, we revisit 2000's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I don't get that. The character's called Jen. She is, yeah. But first, sensible celebs, horrific stats and no coup, thank you. It's time for the Bush Telegraph.
1: Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. I might just put the VR headset on again. (laughs) Is it two player? Uh, No, I don't think so, sadly. Uh, Otherwise, you could have warned me that there was someone behind me. So, Mickey, question. How do you feel about having a COVID vaccine? I mean, I am way
0: down on the list of who gets one of those bad boys. But sure, I hear what people are saying about risks and side effects. But my mum had polio and I know she'd have much rather have had a
1: polio vaccine. So I'm a yes- Yes, agreed. I've got terrible hearing because I had whooping cough when I was a baby when my hearing was supposed to be developing because I didn't have a whooping cough vaccination. So, yeah, I think I'd rather have hearing. So I agree. And also, yeah, I was talking to my auntie Jackie on the phone last night and I said exactly that. I was like, I'm pretty sure if there is a massive catastrophe going to happen, it will happen to one of the 60 million people who get it before I do. So um, I I get to see the largest human trial of a vaccine before I decide. (laughs) But for the most part, yes, I'd rather have one. Okay, another question, Mickey. Would you feel more likely to have one if, quote, a sensible celebrity told you to have one? Uh, Well, I am going to need more info. Well, the good slash bad news is that the government is on the hunt for what it calls sensible public faces (laughs) to be part of a campaign to encourage people in the UK to take up the opportunity of a vaccine when they become available. This follows news that one of the three vaccines, the Pfizer-BioNTech one, could be approved within days, meaning hospitals could start immunising frontline health workers as soon as next week. Oh, So, what is a sensible celebrity? Yep, that question. Tom Hanks? Yeah. Um, well, he has got that daft son, hasn't he? It's <laughs> not his fault. Or is it? Well, there you go. That, there's a question
3: we can talk about for the next 25 <laughs> minutes.
1: Um... Olivia Coleman, maybe. Yeah. She always seems very nice, doesn't she? Yeah. I would do anything that David Attenborough told me to do. Yeah. Ditto Marcus Rashford. Yeah, well, it's funny you should say Marcus Rashford because we'll get on to him later. But whoever it is, it has to apparently be a big name because the anti-vaxxing side has checks, Notes, David Icke and Wright said Fred. Oh, that's big talk. It's big talk. According to a report in The Guardian, NHS communication experts have suggested Marcus Rashford's name. And why not? Because his plan not to let children starve to death is, well, infinitely sensible, yeah. I would say. Also, a big fan of them reading, so that's good too. Mm. They've also apparently got an idea that a member of the royal family <laughs> might fit the bill. <laughs> what? Which I suppose might do the trick for some people, provided they don't go for the sex parties one or the one that probably shouldn't be driving. I mean, after almost a year of being told what to do by people who seem to have no idea what it's like to live in the real world, I can't imagine anyone better to persuade doubters than a fucking royal. (laughs) What if it does go wrong? Would you even be able to tell if they use Prince Philip? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think they're using him as a test. (laughs) (laughs) I think he's supposed to be telling us us what a good thing to do is. But like I say, he's still got a driving licence. So... Apparently, the key is, though, they don't want politicians. (laughs) Well, no shit, Sherlock. (laughs) Meanwhile, as Boris Johnson writes to MPs to warn that the nation might remain in a tier system of restrictions until February. Wowzers. Because for fuck's sake, Dominic Raab has said he's not ruling out a third wave of infections and a third lockdown. So in conclusion, it's all going very well indeed. Uh... I actually had a, 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 what I would describe as my first COVID temper tantrum on Sunday morning.
0: What happened? I
1: was at my mum's house. I was just about to go into the garden to have a cigarette with my brother and I saw it flash across on the bottom of the news that my mum was watching. The Boris Johnson was writing to MPs to say February. And I just went, no, 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 I can't do it by myself anymore for any longer. It's fucking preposterous. I want my life back. I want my life back. And my brother just looked at me for about 20 minutes while I did that. And then he went, should we
0: go back inside? (laughs) Did you flip anything?
1: No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't kick anything because I have a tradition of damaging myself more when I have temper tantrums than I do the thing I'm trying to damage.
0: That makes sense. But I think that might all change when it becomes clear that it'll be going till like next August or something. Sorry, I don't even know why I said that. That's horrible of me. I take it back immediately.
1: Yeah, I just damaged my fist by punching my computer <laughs> where your face is.
0: Oh, okay. Well, this has taken a turn. Um, <laughs> Well, I'm just about to talk about the elimination of violence against women. (laughs) Nah. Last week on International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, Jess Phillips, MP for Birmingham Yardley, tweeted, It's been a gruelling day working on domestic and sexual abuse. Still knocks it out of me after all of these years. Bravo to Karen and Gala Smith and all who worked on the femicide census, which made for harrowing but important morning reading, especially if you know some of those listed. And Phillips does. Each year on or around International Women's Day, Phillips reads out in Parliament the annual list, compiled by Karen and Gala Smith, of women killed by men. And this year, as the number of women killed by men has increased during the pandemic, three women were killed in their homes just minutes from Phillips' own house. It can happen anywhere. And it does. Every three days, a woman is killed by a man. But you knew that already, right? That at least two women a week are killed by a man is a stat I've spoken about countless times on the podcast and obviously I'm not the only person banging this particular drum. And yet it almost fails to surprise anymore. As if it's something sad and horrific, yeah, but, well, to be expected. After all, it's a statistic that hasn't shifted since Karen and Gala Smith first started counting dead women killed by men or where a man is the principal slash primary suspect back in 2012 men's violence against women is a leading cause of the premature death for women globally but research in the uk and europe is limited and unconnected which is why the femicide census is so important by providing this detailed comparable data about femicides in the uk since 2009 and that includes demographic and social factors and the methods men select to kill women and by collating femicides, it's clear that these killings are not isolated incidents, as are often reported in the press, and actually many follow repeated patterns. Released last week, the UK Femicide Census 2008-2019 is invaluable if tough reading, and you'll find it at femicidesensus.org. 62% of women killed by men were killed by a current or former partner. Of the 888 women killed like this, at least 378, which is 43%, were known to have separated or taken steps to separate from the perpetrator. In 46% of all cases, that's 658, the perpetrator had a history of violence. The data is clear, and that means that so is the question. Why has the state's response to male violence against women in the last decade failed to see the numbers of women killed decline? They should be doing something about it. Mm. What you can do about it is if you are thinking of giving any cash to charity this Christmas, your local grassroots women's refuge is an excellent place to start.
1: It's difficult to because whatever they're doing clearly isn't working. But I don't know why it's not working. Is it not working because it's not a good idea is it not working because it's not tackling the root of the problem and it's only trying to tackle the symptom I I don't know it's difficult to know isn't it
0: I think society has Hmm. an issue with naming the problem which is male violence It it just doesn't get said they keep getting reported as isolated incidents instead of putting the pattern together if we don't name the problem we can't tackle it Anybody want a bit
1: of good news? I'm the only other person here, and yes, I do. (laughs) Do you want a bit of good Well, Peggy's here, and Peggy's about to get some good news, which is I'm going to put her in another room if she doesn't (laughs) start behaving herself. Well, here you go. Donald Trump has said on Twitter that he had recommended that the General Services Administration, which is the agency that provides transition resources, and by transition it means from one president to another president, to, quote, do what needs to be done with regard to initial protocols. Which, short of a concession that he lost the November election, is the closest we're going to get to a dignified departure from the White House. But, nonetheless, it means that, as we've consistently said all year, he will not be conducting a coup. And by we, I very much mean standard issue. Those journalists writing endless panic-inducing stories to the contrary, well, they've gone a bit quiet. Mm. Maybe they are busy deleting their tweets. (laughs) But nonetheless, it's good news for the world. It's good news for America. It's good news for Standard Issue. And it's good news for anyone who places bets based on my political predictions. So me. Did you win some cash, mate? I did win some cash that that, uh, Biden would win. Uh, Not very much, but I put some money on when the odds changed when donald trump did better in well, they thought he was doing better and his odds went up i put some money on biden i didn't win much but i want some awesome unfortunately they wouldn't let me bet on whether he conducted a coup because <laughs> i think that's wildly inappropriate but yeah
0: oh no biden's hurt himself i'm like please just get into the office before God. you damage yourself
1: everybody google harrison uh president harrison benjamin harrison and uh Maybe that will be a prediction of what comes to pass in the next few months.
0: Well, thank you for that good news, Hannah. And as it's December, how about a bit of festive cheer? Yes. Fuck knows we could do with it, eh? Ding-a-ling-a-fucking-ling. So joyous, so joyous. But how about a socially distanced lockdown alternative to Advent carol services and Christmas concerts? Well, you've got it. A Musical Advent, which you'll find at MusicalAdvent.com, unveils a new concert each day of the calendar of December and features a mix of stars and instruments, including an award-winning concert pianist, a West End star, a Royal Opera House soprano, instrumentalists, new and established ensembles, and a few fun surprises. Ooh. Also, all the money raised goes to support freelance musicians struggling in the current climate. If laughing rather than music is your bag, the Comedy Store are putting out a show comprising highlights from the last two years, which you can stream from 7pm on December the 4th to 8 a.m. on December the 12th for just a tenner, and it is quite frankly a ridiculous lineup featuring Joe Lysett, Joe Caulfield, Tom Allen, Kerry Godliman, Zoe Lyons, Graham Norton, and loads more. And, making this particularly feel-good news, all of the cash goes to Trinity House Hospice and St George's Hospital in memory of Annie Caulfield and Stella Keep. Visit the Comedy Store live.co.uk for more info and tickets.
1: Yeah, that sounds like value for money in the extreme. Yeah, totally. More news next week.
0: Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the Week. It's that time of the week where we ask, what's the difference between women's health and men's health? If you're thinking the answer is biology, duh, well, you'd be wrong. It is, in fact, clothes, or more accurately, a lack of them. A difference that leaps out when the US covers of fitness magazines, women's health and men's health, are placed side by side. Hello, be masked, be shirted paramedic on men's health. And blimey women's health, why is Julianne Hough only wearing an itsy bitsy bikini? Will nobody think of her kidneys? (laughs) To be fair, as one of our listeners pointed out, it is a fairly untypical cover for men's health. And he is right. The publication does love a naked male torso with a ridiculously chiseled six pack. But clearly, in these unprecedented times, it wanted to celebrate, and I quote, the heroes and healers in a COVID hot zone, offering its readers, and I quote again, strength and hope clearly women are overflowing with strength and hope so we just need tips on keeping our eyebrows pretty mm. and some new recipes for the blender they're not even smoothies hannah i'm very excited Wowsers. okay so this might seem a very easy target for sexism of the week given this sort of bullshit is the whole reason sarah started standard issue but it is beyond infuriating to see it continue should i just do
1: one of my patented sighs yes please <sighs> Hi, I am joined on the phone by Frances Loy, director of new short film Swings and Roundabouts, which tells the story of a couple grieving after a miscarriage. Thank you so much for joining us, Frances.
4: Thank you, Hannah. Nice to see you. I meet you. This is your first film? This is my first short film.
1: Yes. Obviously, miscarriage is an important and uh, much ignored topic. I wonder what it was that drew you
4: to it that basically that it is very ignored and not talked about and I feel like it's a really important topic the statistic is one in four pregnancies will not result in a baby and the vast majority of those are miscarriages that happen before the 12-week period that's a common statistic that's a lot of people that this affects Mm -hmm. and just like with The fact that we're now starting to talk more about mental health issues and all sorts of things that affect people that have previously not been discussed. This just seems like one of those subjects that there needs to be more about.
1: Because that statistics interesting, isn't it? Just because something's common, it doesn't mean it's not incredibly traumatic. Did you speak to women about their experiences, women that you know, is that how you grounded yourself in it?
4: I'm a mother myself. I have not experienced a miscarriage, very fortunately for me, but I think the vast majority of fellow mothers that I know have had miscarriages than haven't. And actually for a lot of the women who I was pregnant with the first time, lots of us fell pregnant very easily the first time. And actually there are a lot more kind of second baby miscarriages mm-hmm. amongst my friends I think all of it is very difficult but when you've had one very successful easy pregnancy then the kind of fear that you have that first time goes away for the second time so I think there's was a massive shock to a lot of those women. The big thing I realized when I started writing the script and delving into the story more was that I'd spoken to so many female friends about their experiences before I'd even thought about doing the film. But I hadn't really spoken to any male friends about mm. it and There are two parents to consider when you're talking about a heteronormative relationship. And I realized that actually there is something to be said there. And it's something that a couple goes through together. And the person who is not pregnant obviously goes through some kind of grief cycle as well. So the actual really big chunk of my research into was actually speaking to men.
1: I did a thing for Baby Loss Awareness Week a couple of months ago now. And the woman I was talking to who had 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 a baby and it, it died hours after it was born. Mm-hmm. Well, she was saying it's actually something that's mourned quite widely within a family as well. Your Your parents have often been really invested in this child that you were expecting and that it does affect everyone around you. But the focus is always on the mother because it's literally your body that it's happened to.
4: And it absolutely should be focused on yeah. the mother. Like I think this is the thing. Mm. I don't want to make it seem like I think the men's experience trumps the woman's experience, because obviously it doesn't. Yeah. But it absolutely needs to be taken into account. Yeah, and I think agree. the thing is that as much as it isn't spoken about between women, it's really, really not spoken about between men, because there's this feeling that lots of the men I spoke to, use phrases like i'm not entitled to Mm grieve it's not happened to me i my job is to look after her one friend in particular he took up running because it was the only way to try and get some of his own grief and sadness out Mm -hmm. because he felt like he couldn't be sad in front of his wife so it's absolutely yeah not to say that the mother's experience isn't important it's it's still Mm -hmm. kind of the most important one but there's something about taking away an ability also for her to grieve with the person she's created this baby with if they're also feeling like they're not allowed to show their feelings over it.
1: So, you did speak to some of your male friends as well, I take it, about yeah, their experiences.
4: It was fascinating. And it was actually really amazing how open they were to speaking. I spoke to a lot of friends. At about their husbands first and then a few of those friends were like actually do you know what I'm happy to talk to you about it and there was one friend in particular I had like a three hour long conversation he went so in depth about it all and that was really kind of the change in the script for me about trying to make it what's this couple going through together because as I'm sure you're well there's so many iterations of the story and the script the very first draft is a completely different story to what we ended up with. And actually, there was one friend, her husband had ended up having a bit of an emotional breakdown about six months after the miscarriage. So she'd spoken to friends and not many people knew, obviously, because you just don't tell anyone. That's the thing. But Mm. as soon as you find out one friend's had a miscarriage, then that tends to be the person that you then talk to about it. But he just didn't speak to anyone. And he six months later, he just got really sick, had like a fever, was really exhausted, couldn't get back out of bed, was Put off sick off work it was almost like the grief had manifested itself physically because he'd just never spoken about it not even to her and then she's got a friend's husband to then speak to him Mm. and he finally had like another dad he could talk to about it why do you
1: think that creatively people do shy away from it
4: no actually because it's not like deep emotional experiences aren't Mm. talked about I don't know if it's because of the whole secrecy around it and the feelings of shame, which is utterly ridiculous, Mm. that that the shame a woman feels when she has a miscarriage that her body has failed in some kind of way. I don't know if there's just an intense personal issue with it, that people either feel like they can't speak on behalf of other people or it's not something they want to share themselves. I did kind of go through the motions and I realised I was making this film and I knew I would be asked the question if I personally have experienced miscarriage mm. and to be like, no, I I haven't. So I am kind of telling a story that is not my own, but I wonder if maybe that helps in some kind of way to be objective and to yeah. be a person who can sit and say, Hey, tell me about your experience. I have no experience and no judgment. So you can be free to say everything that you want to in order for me to try and tell your story authentically mm. rather than necessarily just going, this is, purely my experience and I'm just putting myself into it. I'm not a big fan of art that does that generally, well, in terms of film and performance. And I'm not sure as well if it's, be careful how I word this, but I'm not sure if it's also because of the still male-dominated essence of the way these stories are told, that it's not maybe seen as a story that's worth telling, or it's not something that maybe studio executives or whatever are thinking oh that's a subject we should cover but then even then at the same time I'm like but your version your experience Mm. of it is important to tell as well as I say it's I feel like it's a it's a full as you say it's an extended family experience that people go through not just a woman's one so it still seems weird to me that it's seen as like a woman's issue and therefore isn't prioritized in the same way
1: yeah because in a lot of ways for example the way abortion is dealt with Mm -hmm. on film and um, television. Uh, I spoke to Kelly O'Sullivan earlier this year because her film, St Francis, largely covered issues of abortion. And it's absolutely brilliant that that is being talked about and written about because that in it as well, a common experience for women. But it would seem odd that in some ways we seem happier to talk about that experience, I think, than we do to talk about the other experience.
4: I wonder if that's because there's a huge politicization around abortion yeah, as well I don't know I think there's something about people love to judge the things that they see and the yeah. actions of people so maybe it's just not seen as something worth telling because the audience doesn't kind of come into it in the same way doesn't have the same relationship I mean I live in America and abortion is such a politicized mm-hmm. issue I don't know if maybe that's part of it maybe it's be more comfortable to talk about because it becomes about politics rather than about actual storytelling.
1: If one of my friends told me that she had had an abortion I feel like I I would know what the right thing to say was whereas if one of my friends had told me she'd had a miscarriage I don't know that I would know what the right thing to say was if that makes sense because I think that's a lot of the problem isn't it especially if you're trying to be supportive because again the same as when we were discussing the thing about baby loss is words like well you can try again which I'm sure the person who says that means the best but it's just the worst possible thing to say in that circumstance it really is
4: yeah completely and I'm the same as you I actually had I've had friends who've had run the gamut you know I've had friends who've had stillbirths I've had friends who went for their 20-week scan and had to opt for a medical abortion because their baby just wasn't going to survive and it's really hard to know what to say in those situations and I think that's kind of what's been interesting for me is telling this story and trying to be true to knowing what to say and how mm. to tell the story when it's not something that I've experienced myself but have been very very close to the huge range of experiences that it comes under under baby loss there weren't several moments actually in the script development where we were like do we want to leave it open as to at what point she's had the miscarriage are we talking about a stillbirth because she started writing the script just after a friend of mine had a stillbirth and kind of went went into labour, went into a hospital and was told the horrible news that her baby had died 24 oh, hours. That's that
5: started.
4: So that was very much in the forefront of my mind. But I think the reason that I ended up erring more towards miscarriage, and it's not necessarily that clear, but in my head, it's kind of early. It's in the first three to four months that it happens was because the statistic is so massive and because it is so common. And I wanted it to feel very universal in that way, because I think in the same way of talking about abortion, maybe, and it's, I mean, nothing's ever made about stillbirth either. But I feel like there's so many people who'd be like, oh, we could talk about that because that's something that's never going to happen to me. Yeah, Statistics, and it's still, there's still something like 7,000 stillbirths a year happen in the UK. It's still a lot.
1: Now, I want to say that I was told it was one in 200 births. I want to say that I was told that during that thing but now I don't know if it was because that's that seems like that
4: a... the same statistic I don't know I just remember my friend had hers that was yeah. she was like you're one in the 6 or 7000 people that's happens to Yeah it year. probably is the it's same not...
1: statistic isn't it I don't know how many babies are born but yeah
4: No <laughs> <laughs> Now you
1: originally come from the theater can I ask you what your hope for the theater given the year it's had
4: um, the vibes it's really interesting isn't it like it's been so heartbreaking and so hard and i think the thing that really got me over the summer was when they released hamilton live streaming mm-hmm. and how many people were like oh amazing we get to see hamilton this is so awesome which is awesome yeah. i mean i categorically have something against the fact that it's supposed to be this very accessible piece of theater that people were having to pay two three hundred dollars to go and see anyway different conversation yeah But I did make the point to everyone who was so excited about it. I was like, cool, that's theatre, though. So do you think that because you're effectively seeing it for free or part of your streaming service you pay for anyway, you could maybe donate a theatre ticket price to, like, a small theatre? Because... That doesn't happen without the smaller theatres. These amazing shows don't just come out of nowhere. It's so expensive to make theatre and it's really hard to make any money so that people get paid properly. And it's so important people get paid properly. And I think people just think of kind of glamorous actors sometimes and you're like, no, what about the stage manager who now doesn't have a job? Now what about the cleaners who come and clean the theatre? You know... All of those people, what about the PR people? So it did break my heart and make me very upset, especially because you're packing people onto planes to go on their foreign holidays, and yet there are ways you can make these buildings work so at least the show goes on in some kind mm-hmm. of way. Because I think it's also there's so many people I know who are like they just can't plan for anything because they don't know when stuff is going to be able to happen. It frustrates me that there wasn't more of an effort on behalf of the government to try and figure this out because I know there were people in the industry who were submitting papers and ideas and thoughts and proven techniques of how it's worked in other countries. Yeah, I understand there are a lot of priorities, but as ever, the arts... No, it's never a priority. Never no,
1: And, and
4: yet we- here we are in a global lockdown where everyone's watching television all the time.
1: Yeah. Like, yeah.
4: it's a priority right now.
1: Yeah. Like you said, it's depressing on a lot of levels because I think... In order to make it profitable, then you're either going to have to make the tickets more expensive and therefore it becomes less accessible, or you cut everybody's wages, in which case the only people that can afford to go and work in theatres are people who can afford to work for very low wages. It becomes like a hobby, doesn't it? But
4: also, we're all very used, do you know what I mean? We're all very used to the fact that the the expectation is that Mm. we work for free and we all cut our teeth paying to be able to work and so there's almost this stoicism I think from the theatre community when something like this happens of like you know our motto is the show must go on effectively so yeah that's absolutely something that could happen but better to work than not work at all Yeah. yeah to a certain extent. I do appreciate there's lots of things the government has to take into account and some things they've Mm. done well. No, they've done
1: nothing well. (laughs) Oh, I don't think over here, I don't think, mind you, I don't think over there they've done too much well either.
4: No, I know, both countries out of the frying pan and into the fire.
1: (laughs) Can I talk to you about something else that you do? Because one of my discoveries over lockdown, I basically, I'd always been a big reader, but I really struggled to sit still during lockdown. But then suddenly I discovered book that I changed my life. I don't know why I've never... Listen to them before, and you direct audiobooks. And I don't know why I I don't know why it didn't occur to me that that was a thing. Because of course it's a thing, because it is Um, acting essentially, isn't
4: it? It's not really a thing. There's not many studios actually use directors. Oh really. Audiobook producers will send a text to an actor, an actor normally records it in their cupboard that they've turned into a studio, and then an editor puts it together. But I work as a contractor for Penguin Random House, and they're one of the very, very few people. Thank God, because they're huge, and obviously they produce a lot. They're one of the very few studios that use directors, and they really believe in using directors, because... Well, first of all, it saves a lot of time from the editorial post point of view because we're catching a lot of the mistakes as they go. Mm. And actors are actors. They're like me. We like to work with other people. And so they definitely see the value. They get a much better performance out of actors when they've just got another person in the room collaborating and working with them. And I didn't listen to audiobooks at all until I started working in audiobooks. And I suddenly had an hour long commute to the studio and yeah, I love them now. It's really cool. Yeah. And I did a English literature degree. So it's like my two loves coming together in a really lovely way. And one of the few industries that's currently doing okay during lockdown. Yeah.
1: Which You've yeah. been working with Jeff Goldblum.
4: I did work with Jeff Goldblum. Yes, Tell indeed. me what that was
1: like. That seems like it would be an experience.
4: It was an experience. He is brilliant. His mind just ping-pongs from one thing to another mm. so quickly. Like he's quite hard to keep up with, but he's... He's so interested in the world and he's one of those people that has a breaking news app on his phone. So there's constantly, he's every break, he's like, oh my God, did you see this? And did you see this? Like he's so tapped into the world yeah. and how it operates, but in a really kind of inquisitive, brilliant way. Like, have you seen any of the series, his TV series that he's just made, The World According to Jeff Goldblum? No. No, but oh my God. ends oh my interview, God. goes and watches yes. it now. Oh my God, it's so good. So, Okay, it might just be an America thing. I have to find out how you can watch it in England, okay. but through Disney Plus we watch it through the National Geographic channel. So he's done this series called The World According to Jeff Goldblum and one time he looks at bikes and another time he looks at other protein sources by eating insects. And that is Jeff on that program. Mm. That's exactly what he's like.
1: Can I yeah. ask what's next for you, Francis? Are you are you
4: Do you know uh, the way the world is at the (laughs) moment? Do you have any idea? Loads of audiobooks. But the next kind of immediate steps are getting distribution sorted for swings and roundabouts so we can finally put it out into the world. And I have booked my first video game. There's a lot of movement in the voice directing world now that video games, which is not something I was ever interested in or into, but over the last five years they've become so much more of an immersive experience. Video games have these cool cinematic cutscenes now. It's not just about getting someone to shout fire in the hole in seven different accents. Like there's (laughs) really cool creative stuff going on in that realm as well. So I'm lucky I'm kind of managing to build my career in lots of different ways as directors. And I feel like there's a lot of directors who are now able to do that, where you're not just a theatre director anymore. You manage to transcend and move between all the various mediums and art forms. You're a director of actors, ultimately. And that's super
1: exciting and I love it. Thank you so much for your time, Frances. This has been excellent.
4: It's been lovely to chat to you.
1: Hello, Hannah here to give you a sneak preview of this week's Chops, in which I'll be chatting to chef, TV presenter and all-round delight Nadia Hussain about her new TV series, Nadia's American Adventure, which starts on The Beeb on December the 10th. The whole interview is coming up on Sunday and if you hit subscribe wherever it is that you listen to your podcast, it'll be waiting for you when you get up in the morning or the afternoon, if that's how you do your Sundays. But in the meanwhile, here's a sneak preview when Nadia tells me about being in a Guatemalan street market in Los Angeles.
3: Yeah, when I was out there, one of the things that really hit me was in LA. And when I think LA, I think the Hollywood sign, I think celebrities, and it's kind of the hotspot. You have this image. And in my head, I was hoping to be surprised, but equally ready to not be. But it's a big old place. And luckily, you know, I had the opportunity to meet some incredible people. One of the first things that I did when I went out there was I went to a Guatemalan night market, which to me, Guatemalan night market, Los Angeles. You don't put the two together. You wouldn't naturally. And we were out there at night. I say we because what people don't see is the camera crew and everybody else that's with me. Like to be able to go out and experience the, like, we literally just still jet-lagged and we're thrown into this Guatemalan night market where your senses are on overload. The smell, the sounds, just the lights, everything. Everything about that is so immersive. Mm -hmm. Like, you just, you are in this experience and you would not know from that little strip of road that I was walking up and down, you wouldn't know you were in LA. You would not know. And there were people there who had traveled for lots of reasons you know they were either running away from something or they don't even have residency there yet you know they don't have their paperwork so they they are there they don't know how long they're there for but they're all they everyone had a story and everyone was there for a reason all immigrants and for me that was really interesting but in that kind of little strip of road where they had this market, they came alive. They were alive. Mm. You, I heard their sad stories, but within those sad stories, there was this light in their eyes and there's this life that you don't see anywhere else. And that, that was through the food. They were cooking and serving food for people who would drive by. And, and like, these are people who missed that little taste of home. Yeah. You drive by and pick up some fried chicken or some grilled steak or some pupusas. Like, Kapoosas, they sit in your stomach and they'll keep you full for a week, but they were delicious. These maize patties that filled with vegetables and then cheese on top, just like absolutely incredible and you wouldn't get anything like that anywhere else.
1: When I saw you walking through that market and there was a guy and he was cooking on the shopping trolley, which was just yeah. amazing, my gut reaction was very, very British. We have kind of a sterile attitude to food. We want to know, were people wearing gloves? We make people like wear hair We worry about how many calories there are in things. And that was just food for the sake of food rather than <laughs> thinking about anything else. Yeah,
3: I mean, like they were pretty ingenious, you know, taking yeah. what they have, the little that they have and turning it into something they could cook on and it was portable so they could just finish up and roll it away done done for the, <laughs> the
0: night i am joined on the old zoom by journalist author and full disclosure up at the top one of my all-time favorite humans tina jackson tina hello 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 so, T, you have been one of my very few good news stories of 2020, thanks to Fahrenheit Press picking up your glorious debut novel, The Beloved Children. So, thank you for providing some joy.
5: Well, thank you for Standard Issue for inviting me to come and say hello. I'm utterly, utterly pleased, and it's a joy to be part of a conversation about women and fabulous women at that.
0: I mean, I'm loath to interrupt you to talk about your book now, but I'm going to. I have been lucky enough to read an advanced copy of The Beloved Children, and it really is as much a thing of glittering wonders as the fabulously ramshackle Franks Theatre in which it's set in wartime London. It's liberally doused in magic realism and packed with ferocious and bewitching women. Can you give the listeners an idea of what and who The Beloved Children is about, please?
5: *The Beloved Children is a story about three young women who are Chrysanthemum, Rose and Arraj, who are thrown together as a very untested troupe of not very good dancers in a variety theatre and because it's wartime, all the acts are all them old codgers as, <laughs> as Billy Fanks refers to them, acts from bygone days, they're acts who've seen better times and the Three Graces are the three young untested untried wide-eyed up for all sorts young girls who come into this theatre and it's a transformation story so inevitably as they step over the the threshold of the theatre their lives are going to be transformed and they're transformed in all sorts of different ways but their friendship lasts throughout their lives. The beginning of the book picks them up when they're very old ladies and they're looking looking back on their glory days.
0: It certainly reads like you've been living with some of these characters, including two who are very key, who you haven't
5: mentioned yet,
0: for a long time.
5: The genesis of this book started with a dance. I'm part of a variety troupe and have been for a long time part of a dance troupe. And the number that we did some years ago, many years ago now, involved an old Pelham puppet of a dancer. We'd evolved a little dance whereby she and the person... Manipulating her, which was me dressed in a version of her costume, enticed all these characters out of the toy box. And they came out of the toy box and they were all the characters in this book. And they did not want to go back in the box in the dance. <laughs> and in real life, they didn't want to go back in the box either. That's where they came from all those years ago. The
0: characters of Dolores and Janet, who are as much as the Three Graces are gorgeous, the proper standouts the show stealers and that is how they would want it to be their voices are amazing the vernacular with which they talk how hard was it to to get those voices
5: it wasn't hard at all because they were very real very living creatures Um, of all the characters in the book they were the closest to me and my experience of I mean they're not me but they were the easiest to create. They came through very loud and very clear. They're based in people that I know. They're based in the way people talk that I know. Um, So whilst they may seem the most, where did they come from? They're actually nearest to realism. (laughs) (laughs) They always say you should write what you know. So I did.
0: (laughs) Is it mean to make you pick a favorite character?
5: Jenna and Dolores are obviously the heart of the book. Dolores has got all the best lines. Oh, I don't know. Jana comes out with some corkers. Jenna's comes out with some good ones. Dolores has got some crackers. But there isn't anybody in there that, that I don't love, which is a good job because there's been seven years in the creating, so it'd be a while to spend with people that you're not bothered about. But yeah, Jenna and Dolores are the heart of the book.
0: It's also about the formidable power of female friendship, which those two properly encapsulate. And the the men are very much sideshows in these women's lives. They're there and they're loved while they're there, but they are not the main course at all. Did you set out to write women's stories?
5: I was very interested in writing women's stories and I was very interested in writing stories about friendship because women's friendship is one of the most powerful Relationships that we ever had, and yet it's, it's often a relationship that is taken for granted, not by the women experiencing it, but by the outside world. And we're often set against each other and say, "Women, yes. you know, they're, they're natural enemies. You know, they they cat You can't put women together; they'll fall out." And I think this is absolute bullshit. You know, the best and most beloved and supporting and sustaining and Hilarious and fun and glorious relationships in my life have been with women and, you know, relationships with friends, beloved friends that, you know, matter and who enable parts of your life, you know, emotional, creative, fun. And when these other relationships that, you know, we're meant to prioritise, and, so, and often in our lives we do prioritise temporarily, these other relationships, um, romantic relationships. We then return to our female friends, our support groups, our allies. Yes, I really did want to write about women's friendships. You can have other relationships, and the other relationships can absolutely be invaluable. You know, and I'm not decrying romantic love or the love of a partner, a romantic partner. I'm just saying that there is another relationship that's often sidelined. And actually, these are some of our main relationships. And our greatest joys come from our female friends a lot of the time. And we have lifelong friendships like that. So, you know, that's one of the things that I did want to write about with the beloved children.
0: I think you capture it beautifully and I think what you said there and it's something that I've thought and and probably talked about before is that instead of celebrating these women's friendships and putting women's friendships centre stage they do tend to put centre stage romantic relationships and pitting women against each other it's got to come from a place of fear of how powerful that female solidarity can be and how transformative it can be to the status quo when women are allowed that solidarity
5: well, I think we've always have had that solidarity. I mean, one of the things I'm very interested in, obviously, because I've written about it quite a lot in The Beloved Children, are the kind of people who don't get seen or get regarded as others. Everybody in, in my book is somebody that in another book would be a supporting character, yeah. and all oh, look, aren't they a strange character, but in here they're not. So I'm always very interested in what actually goes on in what is seen as the sidelines. And because women, in, historically, have very often not been seen or not been counted, you know, their opinions haven't been sought. So their friendships have been allowed to exist out of sight. And in, and I think, in a way, we've had a lot of strength in the out of sightness of our relationships. Much as I, I want to see women doing all the awesome things and owning the space, all the space you know in, in everybody should have the exact same rights to own space, but I do and I am very interested in what happens when you're overlooked and you reclaim you have your own space, because female space is, a, is, is a, a massive issue. you know people don't see female space so they don't count it. And and actually, we do, we've do. we always had our spaces and our places where we thrive and where we exert our power. It's just sometimes being that the world chooses not to see those because it's looking for power in other places.
0: I couldn't agree with you more, as is, is quite often the way and has been the way across our friendship of many decades. <laughs> but that's really key as well, because I think a place where women do find space is through stories. And the power of story is absolutely paramount in the beloved children. And it's not just the one story, it's a jigsaw of many stories within that story, as as life is. But I loved that. I wondered why you think that even as adults, we still connect so hard to stories of magic and wonder, to stories like yours, which are sort of a take on a fairy tale.
5: What I wonder, if I can just slightly turn that round is why we wonder about wonder because when we're children and we read as as, the stories that we read as children it is absolutely taken for granted that we love transformation tales we love fantastic worlds we love magic we love possibility we love the fact that your life can change absolutely and in in magical ways and when we get to be adults all of a sudden these stories we're supposed to value them less and, and I wonder why why we're supposed as adults to read different things, that we're supposed to read stories that are less, where the world has got to shrink. Because when we're children, our worlds are allowed to expand and expand and expand and expand. And as adults, we're supposed somehow to be much more conventional in what we, we see and read and enjoy and appreciate and I think you've only got to look at a, a theatre company like Nehi or like Emma Rice's Wise Children to see that actually as, as adults we can have that same captivation with enchanted worlds, we can have that same heart in the mouth sense of possibility we can suspend all our ridiculous uptight this is what an adult is supposed to be, mores and just experience you know life in all its raw and beautiful and glorious thrills, and that means sometimes it's terribly sad, sometimes it's heartbreaking, that's all part of it but i you know I wonder why we we insist on having as adults so very often this filter that things have got to be you know a little bit less a little bit more restrained, a little bit less in colour,
0: yeah, I think. We are taught to put ourselves in boxes and your characters joyously and fiercely will not be put in boxes. One of the big powers of stories that I found I connected to in The Beloved Children is the choice of what stories not to tell. And I think today there's almost an entitlement to knowing like what happened in your family in the past and your stories, your genesis stories of where you all came from. And actually with the generation above me and certainly my grandma's generation,
5: there was stuff that happened that just never got talked about. That's so interesting because that's exactly what happened in, in my family as well. And when you come from backgrounds like ours where people come from all sorts of different places and they, you know, they come to cities and they come to work and they come you know quite often they come because they're leaving something behind they're leaving poverty they're trying they've they've come you know historically to make a better life for themselves in some way Uh, and there are lots of things that were, were never said and you know I love hearing own voices stories and I love the fact that now people can be very open and very honest and reclaim their their bit of space but i do i'm also fascinated by those other stories where you often didn't tell your story you, you, your stories were kept secret and and we are entitled to you know to tell which bits of our stories we're like you know we sometimes sometimes it, there's a the feeling that you know people have to bear all and, and sometimes We are allowed to create ourselves you know if 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 the only story that you ever told about yourself was the one that was the awful day when you were 12 where you just completely messed everything up and you were stuck with that one story for the rest of your life that would be heart-rending you know but we all have many stories and some of our stories are appropriate all our lives and some of them are appropriate for a bit of our lives but we're all into you know we all have many stories woven together And all our pasts have many stories woven together as well. Our stories aren't simple. And sometimes, you know, our stories aren't appropriate to be told. I'm sure all families have stories in them which are painful for telling or maybe need a passage of time before that story gets told. Some of the stories in The Beloved Children, those are stories that have been buried for a reason, I conceal them. I employ a lot of theatrical tricks in that book. But I think you can work it out. But the fact is that one of the characters hasn't worked it out. And that's maybe the story that you follow.
0: We see most of the story through Chrysanthemum's eyes. And she's, she's quite naive. And at its heart, for me, The Beloved Children is about something that I think has come into much sharper focus over the past nine months and counting. And that is, it's home. It's about her finding a home. It's about all these outliers finding a home and belonging and it makes the excellent point that that is not necessarily where you think it's going to be
5: some of us are very lucky to have families that we love but some of us also are very lucky to have families that we choose yeah and that was very the beloved children is very much about you know that family is who you love and it has become i think maybe that's one of the reasons that there's been a little bit of, of interest in, in this little book is because in lockdown we've all had so much that we can't do that actually the things that, we, that matter have become very sharply focused and the things that matter are the people that we love yeah. and who we connect to and who becomes our families and how we stay in touch with the people that we love who are our families, who may not be our immediate family or our bubble or our support group but who are nevertheless, they're part of our heart's families. And yes, the beloved children is very much about finding who you love and who loves you and who you are at home with and where home is. You know, as I say, some of us are very lucky and, and I, you know, I have, I'm lucky I've got a, a, a lovely mother, my father's dead, I've got a fantastic brother um, and I'm really fortunate that I'm close to them, but I realise a lot of people aren't. You know, they, that's, that's not everybody's experience of family. Where do you feel not just you, but more you?
0: Yes, yes.
5: Where you can be who you truly are.
0: And the confidence to work out who that is, I think.
5: Well, sometimes, you know, and I, I'm a great believer that as happened the day that I met you. And I walked into an office and it's like, oh there you are. Yeah. You walk you know, the people you meet, you know, they you find them in the rooms where you are, you know, and, and they transform your life.
0: Dancing also plays a huge part in the beloved children because we are following the three graces and it leads to the three graces getting to know Dolores and Jana. Now I have had the pleasure of hoofing alongside you in your troupe that you mentioned earlier, Dancers Bazaar. And dancing has been transformative and life enhancing for you hasn't it
5: dancing's been the best thing I ever did I I started years and years ago when I worked at the big issue and I started going to a belly dance class and I'd always fancied it after seeing it on telly when I was a kid oh I like the look of that it was the most wonderful thing to do joyful liberating thing and if you work with words all the time like we do yeah. To have something where you only think about your body is is wonderful. So I, yes, I've always loved it. It's always been a place where the rest of the world can fall away, and it's been a really a really important part of my life. And it's been a really important thing creatively as well. I've learned a lot creatively about how to put story together through putting dances together, yeah. and I have been part of that show world for a while.
0: No actual hoofing at the moment.
5: No actual hoofing, but we've been doing dances, and although I didn't have a tambourine, I have a copper pan that has been standing in for a tambourine. I've now got, which has been designed by Dancers Bizarre's very own Dolores.
0: That is the kind of tambourine that would make Liam Gallagher weep.
5: Liam Gallagher can bog off, he's not coming anywhere. <laughs> he's coming anywhere near my tambo, he can get his own rotten tambo, he's not having mine.
0: The Beloved Children is published by Fahrenheit Press on Friday the 4th of December, and you absolutely should get your hands on a copy by going to Fahrenheit Press.myshopify.com.
5: Thank you so, so much for having me on Standard Issue and being interested in The Beloved Children. <laughs>
2: You play ball like a doll! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we tally up the votes and decide, well, this is awkward, as we discuss all things women's sport. Now, this isn't quote-unquote women's sport, but all sport is for everyone, so you can't really be talking about sport this week and not give a quick tip of the hat to Diego Maradona, who I'm sure you all will have heard died last week at the age of 60. Suffice to say, he was something of a controversial figure at times, especially for England fans, and certainly not without his problems, but he was ever so good at football and sixty really is no age at all and having said that all sport is for everyone perhaps i'm about to contradict myself here as i get onto the main issue that's right guys i'm talking about bbc sports personality of the year or bbc male sports personality of the year shrugs so a very interesting concept has been brought into the public sphere this week by friend of the podcast judy murray who i just want to say straight off the bat i love full disclosure like Judy Murray is excellent, does excellent things for women's sport with numerous programmes on the go and she's always speaking out about it. She just does way more than she has to, which I want to applaud because it should always be about helping others climb the ladder, in my opinion. I think, and I can kind of understand why in a male-dominated industry such as sport, but I still don't like it, a lot of women in the past have actually been quite quick to distance themselves from arguments around gender equality and i think that's because we've been taught to be sort of grateful for the scraps we receive and not rock the boat lest we end up in the shark-infested waters of the not too distant past but not our jude no So 2020 hasn't exactly been the knockout year we'd have hoped for in any sport, let alone on the women's side. And it's going to be a bit of a struggle. Some have suggested to come up with names for the BBC's Annual Sports Personality of the Year Award. Judy Murray, the maverick that she is, has suggested in a recent interview that it might therefore be time to separate the awards out into male and female categories. When you think about this at first, you're kind of like, no, all sport is for all people. So why should we separate these out? And this is actually detrimental to the cause of equality. But when you think about it... I have to say I'm kind of convinced that this is actually a really good idea. In the 60 year history of the award, there have been 13 female winners and actually only three of those have been in the last 20 years. The last female winner was Zara Phillips in 2006, which was controversial at the time because A, she's a member of the royal family and B, dancing horses fuck off I actually like dancing horses okay like don't even get me started on why this actually is a sport but anyway so why 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 no female winners well let's not fuck around here there is just there is no equality in this industry still so if you look at lockdown and the impact on women's sport look at the way the powers that be work Desperate to get the men's Premier League back up and running, and the women's top league, the WSL, was just immediately thrown in the bin. Look at the way male academy structures were allowed to keep going, but women's were not. And I have to say, while this is not the opinion of everyone, I've been so depressed recently when I've tweeted about issues and in inequality between men and women's football. The number of times I've had people who I can only describe as fucking idiots respond with the age-old women can't fill stadiums, that's why they don't get equal pay argument, regardless of what I'm talking about. So why have Girls' Academies been shut down? Women can't fill stadiums. Why aren't women offered the same opportunities to progress in football? Women can't fill stadiums. It doesn't take a genius to work out that if you address the problems at the bottom, things would start to level out at the top. But, there we go, Twitter is not necessarily a place for geniuses. Anyway, there simply is no competition. Female athletes just, they can't compete with the popularity of men's sport. Then there's the other side of things, like, should they actually have to? You don't just dump all the male and female actors in the same category at the Oscars, so why would you in sport? While the funding, advertising and media coverage is so disparate between the two... How can we possibly expect female athletes to realistically triumph in these awards? And, as Judy points out, it's important that they do. spotty is one of the most noted events in British sports awards, and if you hardly ever see a woman winning, you do begin to think it's simply not possible. As Judy points out in the interview with The Mail on Sunday, and as we often say on this very podcast, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Representation is so important. And just to look at a success story, because it's not all doom and gloom here. The W series, we've spoken a couple of times to W Series drivers on the podcast and to the founder Catherine Bond Muir. In just one and a bit thanks COVID seasons, they've completely changed motorsports for women, where the concept of a woman starting on an F1 grid looked totally impossible a couple of years ago i'd say i'm now filled with a huge amount of hope that this is something we're not going to have to wait too much longer to see though there was initially some criticism of separating women's sport out in this way with the w series i do think that we have the w series to thank in terms of raising the profile of female drivers anyway to leave you on a positive note hot off the press on monday as i record this it's just been announced that from 2025 the women's rugby world cup will be expanded from 12 to 16 teams which has been described admittedly by a man Bill Beaumont the chairman of world rugby as a milestone achievement so there you go okay that's all from me this week and I'll be back next week with more women's sport but I'd love to hear your views on spotty what do you think about all this you can catch me on twitter where I am at inspire and until next time <laughs>
1: Welcome to Rated or Dated, where this week it was Mickey's choice. Mickey, what did you have us flying through the air, bouncing on treetops and watching...
0: I'm really worried about your new obsession with the virtual reality.
5: Anna.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this week, to make up for the fact I have previously chosen either nostalgia-influenced drivel, wang fest, or a neat Venn diagram of the two, we watched Ang Lee's romantic martial arts opus, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, in which the women get all the best stories. To be fair, there is still an element of nostalgia at play for me here because my stepdad and I used to watch a lot of Bruce Lee films together and my granddad adored the TV series Monkey. So I do love me a martial arts fest. What? That was Monkey. Oh,
1: (laughs) were you monkeying? Yeah. Did you think I was secretly signalling you? It's weird
0: because I have to have you on this side of my screen. So it was just a bit like some six foot boxer looming over you in a dark (laughs) alley. (laughs) Also, I am cheating a little bit because it didn't get released until January the 5th, 2001 in the UK, but it did come out on December the 8th, 2000 in the States. A multinational venture, Crouching Tiger was a huge box office success, made for $17 million and grossing $213.5 million worldwide to become the highest grossing foreign language film produced overseas in American history. It was also a critical hit, nominated for 10 Academy Awards in 2001 where it took Best Foreign Language Film, Best Art Direction, Best Original Score and Best Cinematography. It also picked up four BAFTAs and two Golden Globes. Ang Lee, the director, describes the film as a dream of China that probably never existed and also as sense and sensibility meets Bruce Lee and you're not going to find me arguing with either of those descriptions. Plot-wise, it takes its inspiration from Wu Xia, a genre of Chinese fiction concerning the adventures of martial artists in ancient China, and that literally translates as martial heroes. But, you know, we're all about the heroines. More on that in a bit. So, what is happening? We're in 18th century China. Fabled warrior Li Mu Bai, played by Chao Yun-Fat, wants to hang up his sword, but also to avenge his master's murderer, the elusive Jade Fox. For years, he's been head over heels with Yu Shu Lien, Michelle Yeoh, but they are too noble to do anything about it or something anyway. He gives her his fancy sword called Green Destiny to take to an old fellow in Peking for safekeeping, only for it to be almost immediately swiped by Poshbird bird Jen, played by Shang Yi, who is due to be arranged married, but has secretly been training in wudang skills and getting up to desert mischief with saucy vagabond slash highwayman Lo. And anyway, who is her so-called wudang master, Da, da, da. only jade fox in it is it all a bit silly yes but it is a fairy tale so let the many beautiful fights begin i'm going to say one final thing before i let someone else do some talking the astonishing choreography is by Yuan wo ping the man responsible for keanu reeves and carry on moss twirling all over the shop in 1999's the matrix and you can forget any notion of it all being cgi computers were only used to remove the safety wires that held the actors and stunt work was minimum That's Yo, Zuri and Yunfa on those rooftops and in those trees. Hannah, Jen, had you seen it before? I had not,
1: no. I had seen some of it before, but no, I hadn't seen all of it before, no.
2: And Jen? No, I I had not seen it before. I had uh, elected not to watch it at the time, I think.
0: Oh, like that made it sound like it was a a conscious decision to
2: avoid. I think it was, yeah. I think it just didn't appeal to... I don't know what I was, 18-year-old me. Yeah, I'm going to say that's why I didn't
1: watch it either, because people compare it to two things, superhero films and ballet dancing, and I'm not really a fan of either of those things. Yeah. So it kind of drove me away from it, I have to say.
0: Okay, well, now I have forced you to watch it. What did you think? I'll kick off with you, Dunleavy.
1: (sighs) A bit like ballet and superhero films. I can see the point in it, and I can see why other people enjoy it, but it wasn't really for me. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't for me. I've written down here, it's all foreplay and no fucking, which (laughs) there's an awful lot of fighting, but nothing ever comes of it. There's one bit where Michelle, Yo gets her arm cut open, and that's literally, I think, the only damage that anybody sustains in it's, all of this. It's very bloodless. Is... The guy
0: gets the thing to his head and mm. you see a little bit yeah. of blood, but you'd think there'd be more.
1: <laughs> yeah. It obviously is all foreplay and no fucking apart from when it actually is foreplay. I think that's actually probably like the the strongest bit of the film for me when she goes off and like goes into the desert, although there is an awful lot of fighting. It's like when my cats hump the arm of the sofa. I'm like, I don't quite know what the point of it is, but okay.
0: Okay, Hannah, Um,
1: what what do you want that to lead to, though, when the cats are (laughs) humping the arm of the sofa? No, I'm wondering what they want it to lead Um, to at that point. I'm like, I can't actually tell what what they think the end game of this is. The word silly seems a bit dismissive, but yeah, there are whole bits of it I don't even really kind of understand what's going on. That odd thing where she manages to send a guy into a coma by like tweaking his nipples. (laughs) have you never done that (laughs) (laughs) I've sent him into a coma another way Um, and also that thing where they have two fingers at people's necks I don't quite understand what what that is about either but what I will say about it is what it does really well and given that Ang Lee went on to direct one of my favourite films ever what it does really well is scenery and a sense of longing for someone or something that you can't have. And those two elements are the best bits in this and those two elements are what made Robat Mountain so fantastic. So he's good at the subtext, yeah. isn't he?
2: Yeah. Jen? I've got to yeah, I've got to agree with Dunleavy on this. It wasn't really for me. I can see like the ballet thing, that's exactly what I thought about it. Like I, I probably wouldn't choose to watch like a couple of hours of ballet on the telly. Yeah, it, it that's how it felt to me. Although, obviously, the fight scenes are beautifully choreographed and they, they do look very nice, they do fucking go on a bit, don't they? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, just, I just found them a bit boring, to be honest. They're just a bit long and there's an awful lot of them. And there's um, no end to them. Like I say, there's yeah. just points
1: at which people like, it's almost like, oh, they just decide to stop fighting at that point and because they know they'll fight again in 20 minutes. Yeah. I
0: think it's the That's... tradition of martial arts films. And martial arts in general is it's not necessarily good versus bad. Sometimes it's good versus good. So Jen's misguided, but she's not a bad character. So they don't want to kill her. So that's just to be why... clear,
1: Jen in this film? No, no, not Jen, mean... <laughs> Jen in this podcast.
0: <laughs> yes, Jen in this film. She's not a bad character. She's just misguided. So they don't they don't want to kill her. They want to they they want to kind of get her on side. But yeah, I can totally understand why. If you don't like martial arts films it's very fighty that's what it's, i suppose it's a bit like if you don't like a musical no musicals going to convince you to like musicals yeah it's i hope hannah's stroking a cat either that or she's practicing putting a guy in a coma by tweaking his nipples
1: <laughs> no i am stroking a cat she is there sorry jen you were going to say something
2: no, i mean that's that's that is pretty much the summary of of my feelings on it to be honest it was. It's a bit long. The the fighting's a bit dull. Um, it didn't. It didn't do a lot for me. I have to say. And I'm interested that you said that there's no CGI in it because I thought bits of it looked really badly CGI.
0: No, it's all wire work. So when they do the little runs, so they look like they're flying, they're f- and when they are flying, it's wire work.
2: Question: Does mm-hmm. anyone at any point explain why it is that these people can fly? Because if they did, I've i've missed that martial arts that's it just martial arts chinese <laughs> yes. magic martial arts it's,
0: it's exactly that it's that heritage of martial arts films and particularly wuxia that particular genre is is magic realism
1: it's got some funny lines in it that i don't know if they are as bad as they are in their native language the bit where Chao young fat says to michelle Yeoh, oh your hands are so beautifully calloused that's the the oddest thing anybody's ever said in the way of romance apart from the bit and i i I have to say i have paraphrased here when jen wakes up and what was he called dark cloud says to her like basically relax if i was gonna rape if i was gonna rape you i'd have done it by now yeah which is another odd line
2: yeah
0: but then he unties her who says romance isn't dead yeah
2: and they have sex anyway way What a yeah, but, you know, when just... H-
0: Hannah made that uh, remark about it's all fighting, all foreplay, no fucking. I think it's because you'd be tired. And Hannah and I have had this conversation yeah. before, but you'd be too tired to do anything. You yeah. just want a little sleep, not a wrestle.
1: But wherever it is that they are in that bit, which is like I say, to me, I like that bit the best because I think it's got the least amount of like flying. And it's interesting. It looks like the Badlands, like really, mm. it looks like the Badlands of South Dakota, which are beautiful in an odd way. Yeah, but you, you'd be exhausted, I think, after all of that.
0: Okay, can we talk about the women? Because I totally appreciate that if you don't like martial arts movies, it's very hard to change your mind with a martial arts movie. But the
2: women in this are really strong female characters, right? Uh, yeah, I kind of felt they were obviously all really good roles, and women do very much take centre stage in it, <laughs> like, you know, the the goody, the baddie, the sort of in-betweeny. Um, but I did feel a bit like when they introduced the bit almost immediately about the kind of romance element of it, I was a bit like, oh, really? Why does it, why does this, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's integral to the whole thing. Maybe it's necessary. Maybe it just, I just always think it's a bit of a shame. It always feels like it's kind of in there to, to you know, bring the bring the women in to watch it.
0: But she gave up romance for noble reasons and for her career which I think in 18th century anywhere is pretty
1: unusual right I mean is it so unusual as to be entirely fantasy <laughs> yeah probably probably <laughs> I refer you to the fact that
0: this is a little bit silly <laughs> and fairy tale but they've all got their own agency and mm-hmm. they are not scared to get
1: on with it agreed agreed rated or dated women's it's difficult for me to know because i i I don't think that it has aged in that 20 year period it doesn't feel particularly old especially given it doesn't have cgi so therefore cgi is what ages things generally because you think oh that looks a bit shit so i think from that point of view if you liked it in the first place i can't see why you'd like it any less 20 years later so i would say rated even though it's not my cup of tea
0: I'd like to say that I liked it in the first place and I don't like it any less (laughs) 20 years later. Right. So, yeah, rated. And that's probably a more positive place to end, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Jen's just tearing her hair out going, why have I come back?
1: (laughs) Well, why you come back, Jen, is because I get to choose next week. And next week we're going to be some sleigh bells ringing and ding-ding-a-linging and all of that and watch something Christmassy.
2: What was that face? That was a me mouthing scrooged at you furiously. It's no, not, I mean, it's, it's not it's not, not got a birthday
0: I've
1: checked.
2: It's not got oh, a birthday. Oh,
3: does it have to have a birthday?
1: Uh, okay, sorry. Yes. Have you been listening to our podcast, Jen? i been quite busy, <laughs> no, mate. she hasn't. <laughs> it's available at all hours, including like 4am when you're pulling your hair out going, why won't you sleep? Have you tried let, playing us to where we might send her to sleep? I did.
2: Um, in the very, very early days, I did play, uh, I did listen to the podcast when it was 4am and we were awake. Whereas now I just yeah. like at 4am, I'm just like saying to her, no, Lyra, when it's dark, we don't talk. <laughs> when she lies in her bed going,
0: <laughs> ah, ah.
2: <laughs> i'm not sure sending anyone to sleep is a
1: great advert to be honest hannah i think sending babies to sleep will get us some advertising revenue i think i'll personally. give it a go mate next we will be watching home alone <gasps> that's the face mick i'm doing
0: the face i'm doing the macaulay culkin scream as um as as eternalized by edward munch that's where he got the, the idea right. from. Isn't uh, yeah <laughs>
1: i heard that yeah
3: Standard issue for all women.